This is Gil Manser. Welcome you to Word by Word, Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's show was prompted by Diane Peterson's recent Press Democrat article about the collaboration between Redwood Writers and Copperfield's bookstores. Entitled The Redwood Author Spotlight, six local novelists will conduct readings and discussions about their novels on the last Thursday evenings from January through June at the Copperfield's Montgomery Village location. I am pleased to welcome the first three novelists. Marion Linder with San Francisco, Marilyn Campbell with Trains to Concordia, Linda Loveland-Reed with Something in Stone. Marion, Marilyn, and Linda, I want to thank you for sharing your books with our Word by Word audience. Great to be here. Thank you, Gil. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. I'm going to follow the simple expedient of introducing each of you in the order of your bookstore presentations. We'll, I'll talk about you a little bit, and then you'll share with our listeners a little bit about why you wrote the book um, and the response to from uh, readers. So Marion Linder spent her child in Los Angeles and moved to the San Francisco Bay Area in 1993. She has a Master of Arts in Comparative Literature and lives in Glen Ellen, with her husband, daughter, a golden-haired chow-chow, and a little black cat. (laughs) In San Francisco, we meet 19-year-old Anna O'Malley. So tell us about Anna and the book. Well, Anna's a firebrand, and she is a very beautiful young woman who is wounded by her parents' acrimonious marriage and some other things that have happened. So she's had suitors before, but she just can't, you know, she can't seem to commit to any relationship. And it's the eve of the earthquake of 1906 with the great earthquake and fire. And so she, it's, it's, it's about what happens to her during the course of that tragedy, which really was one of the greatest natural disasters in American history. And underreported. Very underreported. I mean, research is in the 80s. Did, determined that there were probably about eight to 10,000 deaths, whereas at the time, right after the earthquake, because of insurance mm-hmm. issues, mm-hmm. it was only reported that about 500 people had died. And the Chinese weren't counted. Of course not. Right, right. Okay, Marilyn Campbell wrote features for a weekly newspaper and worked in public relations before switching to a career in social work. I expected, you know, you knew it. Everyone expected to say to writing, right? Her short stories and poetry have appeared in anthologies and small journals and lives in Northern California with her husband, Michael. Your book is Trains to Concordia, and it is based on a real event, the Orphan Trains. And this one comes out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's correct. Um, I got interested in um, the subject after seeing a PBS special. Uh-huh. And then I did some research, wrote a short story. And it demanded that I write more. So I researched it. And this is about three orphans from Pittsburgh who are um, take, uh, they are placed in homes in Kansas. Mm-hmm. And the story is not only about the travel, but also where they're placed in this small town. Um, two of them are siblings. 
and the other is a, a girl who lived on the streets and then um, was placed in uh, the care of a um, blacksmith. Mm-hmm. She is kind of like your character, a firebrand, and balances out Charlie and his sister, Jenny. So did the brother and sister stay together when they were placed? Well, that was part of the dilemma. Um, originally, they were placed together, and then um, a wealthy woman from town uh, wanted to take uh, wanted to take her in because she reminded her of her daughter who had just passed away a uh-huh. year before. And at that point, um, the children became separated, and Charlie, through most of the book, he, he attempts to get her back um, or to take care of her on his own. And so that is part of part of the story that is attractive to people, I think. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to me, for sure. Linda Loveland Reads writes, Strong character fiction to inspire women in their own life journey. Challenging, though that might be. So there's an interesting bio lead there. I like that. <laughs> Her career includes two BAs from Sonoma State University and the founding of a family business. Born in Hollywood, Linda resides in California wine country. Well, not that far away from, <laughs> from the studio. With her husband, architect, playwright, and author, Harry Reed. In Something in Stone, she has sent her book at nearby Dillon Beach. That's right. Uh, this is my second novel, mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed writing um, about history, including history in the novel. But this time I wanted to do something a little closer to home. So this is set in Dillon Beach, and it's basically about a group of women who have known each other since grammar school. And I based it on my own group of friends from Healdsburg. That's my hometown. And we now um, meet once a month uh, for lunch. And I wanted to write a story that would sort of capture what it was like um, in 1960. Uh, And these women now are um, in their early 50s, and they have just inherited a beach house that they all used to go to when they were kids, but they inherited it from the mother Mm -hmm. of a girl who on prom night, one of their group, walked into the ocean. Mm. So it, It never came back. And yes, I mean she she took her own life, right. and there's ne- no one has basically ever resolved that, and there are other mysteries. Now these five women are going to meet Dellen Beach, and they're going to try to figure out what's going on. Why why did the mother of this girl? leave this um, beach house to all five of these girls, mm. and they're going to uncover. Well, they're sharing it. They've inherited it all together. They all oh. inherited it. So there's a mystery. There's questions and lots of things that are going to come up and things that are right now in the present that are occurring. So um, I think it's interesting and uh, provocative. <laughs> and a mystery. And a mystery. Right. It has, it has a always, mystery tone a good catch, definitely yes. to it. We're going to go chronologically. Let's go back to our oldest story, 1890s. 1891, are we? So we'll go back. Let's go back to 1891 and tell us about Marilyn. What uh, would you like to share with us from your book? 
I thought I would uh, read a small section that I think is germane to the story um, that the children have just made this trip to Kansas. The practice uh, of the orphanages when they would accompany the children would be to um, have word out prior to their arrival in all the towns along the rail line. Those were usually the towns that were targeted as far as trying to solicit uh, foster parents. And uh, they are now in Concordia, Kansas. Let me stop one minute. So what organizations are putting this together? Are they churches? Are they welfare groups? Are they Uh, private people making money from it or what? At that point, it was uh, formal orphanages um, that were glutted with all of these children, you know, from the deaths of their their hardworking immigrant parents. Um, and so they are the ones that organized it. Um, that became the precursor to the foster care system. Mm. So they are now in Kansas, and um, the agent for the... Um, the agent is, is going to conduct a, a little talk here in the in the railroad station. Mr. Buckminster stepped up on a bench, clearing his throat for attention. Ladies, gentlemen, as an agent of the Pittsburgh Children's Home, I'm happy to be bringing you your new orphans. The children have all been checked for disease and are sound, as you can see for yourself. His smile was strained as if he were accustomed to stretching his face into anything other than a sober expression. After I read your names, you are welcome to look over the children and make each other's acquaintance. The crowd stirred. Enoch and Emma Nemot, he called out. A tall, heavy man in overalls stepped forward, his wife in dull cotton behind him. You requested a boy, Mr. Buckminster said. He motioned for Charlie and Jenny to step forward. Meet young Charlie O'Brien and his sister Jenny. Just want the boy. Don't have need for a girl, the man said. Charlie pulled Jenny close to him. Well, Mr. Nemot, the agreement was for you to take them both. You see, they're related, never been apart, Mr. Buckminster explained. Can't help that. Can't afford it to, to feed two more kids. Miss, Mrs. Nemot stepped forward and tugged at her husband's shirt sleeves. She was at least a head shorter and frail-looking except for her stomach that looked swollen to Charlie. Couldn't we take her, Enoch? Now you know, Emma, we talked about this and you agreed. I know Enoch, but she could help out when the baby comes. Help? How? She's too young and scrawny. Besides, we have enough girls. Charlie noticed for the first time that two young girls had been hanging behind. They looked identical in matching gingham look, check, check jumpers. They stepped forward and tugged at their mother's dress. Can she come with us, Mama? One of them said. Enoch, she can help with Sarah and Ruthie. It would mean a lot. I don't know. His broad face turned red as he continued to stammer. You agreed. It looked to Charlie as if Enoch's resolve was beginning to falter. We go together, mister, Charlie said as he and Jenny stepped forward. You see, Enoch, they come as a set, Emma said. Ach, du lieber. Enoch threw up his hands. What does that mean, Jenny asked. I don't know, but I think it's good. A tall, elegantly dressed older woman wearing a bonnet covered with flowers stepped forward and spoke quietly to Mr. Buckminster too low for the others to hear. I think the problem's solved for now, he replied. 
But I sure do thank you for your interest, miss. It's Mrs. I'm Mrs. Violet Hunsinger, the woman fanned herself and did not look deterred. Please tell them of my offer, she said, nodding toward Enoch and his wife. If you wish, he said, his worried face turning back to the puzzled couple. I believe we have a solution. Mrs. Hunsinger has offered her home to Jenny and... No, Jenny cried, clinging more desperately to Charlie. You may visit your brother often, Mrs. Hunsinger said. I'll take you to the farm in my buggy any time you want. That is, if that's okay with the Nemots. Jenny's protests were muffled as she rested her face against her brother's side. Charlie pulled her closer. All the same, ma'am, but Jenny stays with me. Emma Nemot and her daughters looked distressed. Mr. Nemot looked uncertain. Of course I can make it worth your while to take time out of your busy day when I bring Jenny to see her brother. She opened her velvet purse and withdrew a roll of bills. No, Mrs. Nemot pulled at her husband's sleeve. Enoch, please give it a try. Yes, Papa, the girls chimed in. You promised. Uh, thank you, ma'am, but I guess my missus wants to try with the young one first. I understand, Violet Hunsinger said. She pulled a lacy handkerchief from her sleeve and dabbed at her nose. She smiled at Charlie. You're a very good big brother, she said. Jenny is lucky to have you. Her face settled into a sadness that hadn't been there before. She turned, her skirts billowing behind her, as she made her way out of the station. Mm -hmm. So we've got the feeling, or I've gotten the feeling from that, that the the couple, or at least the man that wants to take these children and is looking for a hired hand, that he doesn't have to hire. Correct. Right. Okay. And the, the girl was not an expected part of this, or at least he didn't think it should be part no. of No. Because he couldn't, he didn't want to feed another mouth. Especially right. another girl. All right, because those girls, you know, they, they take more <laughs> care, right? All right, so we're going to flash forward to 1906 and to San Francisco. Marilyn, you want to read from your book? Sure. Uh, I just want to set it up a little bit. Okay. Uh Anna. There's San Francisco. It's sitting on the bay. Ah, right on. <laughs> we all love San Francisco. Um, all right. So it's the night before the earthquake. Anna is a very strong-willed woman, young woman, and her mother is very domineering. And so they're kind of in a battle of wills. Well, Anna's younger sister, two years younger sister, has just gotten engaged. So that makes her mother even more desperate for Anna, you know, to be taken off her hands and married. So her mother has uh, engineered this courtship with Lieutenant Howard, who Anna just can't stand. And so they're they're about to see Enrico Caruso sing mm -hmm. that night mm -hmm. at the Tivoli Opera House down there in downtown San Francisco. And uh, I'll get started on it okay. for you. Okay. Anna O'Malley hesitated outside San Francisco's Tivoli Opera House, fighting the urge to run. She knew her suitor, Lieutenant Howard, waited for inside. She didn't want to face the man her mother wanted her to marry, but she wanted to try to be a dutiful daughter. Moving up the opera house stairs with reluctance, she pushed her way toward her parents through the throng of an excited elite. She looked up at her mother, grandstanding on the top step, and knew that at 19 years old she could do almost nothing to outmaneuver the woman. Still, when the rest of her life hung in the balance, she refused to let her mother force her to walk down the aisle with the wrong man. Lieutenant Howard's obsessive approach to life suffocated Anna, 
the way he wiped off the seat of his own carriage before sitting down, the way he looked around every room for the most prominent people to speak to, the way he made a face if a dog drooled in the park. Everything about the man exhausted her. She knew originality and genuineness would not be possible if she married him, and she worried about losing her true self. Anna wished she could just ignore her suitor until he stopped pursuing her, but with her mother sticking her finger in the pie, it was nigh impossible. At the top of the stairway, Anna's big Irish bear of a father, the one ally she hoped was in her corner, offered her his arm. As they entered the Tivoli with her mother, they passed under a magnificent chandelier, the biggest in the world. In other circumstances, Anna would be thrilled to be here, about to see Enrico Caruso perform. But Lieutenant Howard stood smack in the middle of the foyer, and seeing him, it was as if the bright light in the room darkened. She tried to buoy up her spirits. Looking at the man her mother had thrown her toward for the past months, just to keep her competitive, just to keep her competitive with her recently engaged sister Caroline, who was two years younger, Anna tried on the name Anna Howard and did not like how it fit. Lieutenant Howard might be good-looking with his sandy hair and light hazel eyes, but his fastidiousness drove her mad. On every occasion they'd met, the man had sliced his cake into tiny pieces before eating it. Once, she saw him shine his shoes seven times within the space of an hour. She needed to get free of him so she could live her own life. But Anna knew her little sister's engagement made her mother more determined that she accept Lieutenant Howard's offer of marriage. Glad you could attend, Howard. You know Carolyn, our youngest, and her fiancé, Curtis Fleshing. The lieutenant bowed at her father's words, pressed his lips to her mother's hand, and then nodded to Curtis and Carolyn, who stood nearby. Good evening. Her father pushed her toward the officer, and of course, you know Anna. Anna hoped her father would register the delicate way Lieutenant Howard clutched his opera program, his immaculate uniform, his sanctimonious expression. How was it possible her father didn't realize the man would never be a good match for her? She wanted to moan at the injustice. Even her father would never side with her when it came to issues of love and marriage. But Lieutenant Howard wasn't the right man for her, period. Period. Tell us a little bit about San Francisco at the turn of the century. It wanted to be a world-class city, but it definitely was still a cow town or, you know, a small shipping town, certainly. Well, I've read accounts that it was actually considered the Paris of the West. By who? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think just because there was the such an Chamber influx of, Commerce, of money. Right. Ah, you know, there I was see. just such an influx because it was post-gold rush. Right. And we're kind of experiencing that right now with San Francisco where there's huge tech boom and things are just – I mean, everybody's being outpriced and it's a wild time. And I think San Francisco kind of attracts that on some level. <laughs> Um, yeah, the rent went up to five dollars a a week in uh, nineteen hundred, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> everything was uh, pretty expensive, but you know everything was also built very substandard, and a large part of that was because there was a political boss running the city, mm-hmm. and the One mayor of several in a row, yes, right, and the yes. mayor was in cahoots with him. And Abraham Roof is the political boss, and he ushered in, he handpicked Mayor Schmitz, brought him in. And so what I did is I really look at that, the, the political situation and the, the, the graft, the crime, all, you know, I mean, prostitute in a municipal building, prostitution in a mis- municipal building. I mean, it really was a wild and woolly time in San Francisco. And the way I tied it together is that Anna's mom is having an affair with Mayor Schmitz. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So she has other reasons to get the daughters out of the house. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> 
and her husband. And, well, yeah, <laughs> and but his the, father. the husband might go out. You know, the point is that she doesn't have the daughters watching her every move. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Mm. See, there's always this. What does this it always say? It's love or money. Isn't that the motivations? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's see. Is there love or money involved in something in stone at Dillon Beach? There's a lot involved. A lot. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, setting is sort of setting uh, the Linda story Loveland here. Linda Loveland Reed next. Yes. Um, I did uh, actually when I wrote this book some things they tell you not to do. <gasps> yes, I you know. Want to tell us that or just read? But first? Yes, yes. Why don't you I, read I, first and then tell us. No, what I you have were to told. tell you first because oh, okay. it, I, it kind of will help set the, <laughs> set up what I'm going to read. Okay. Um, one thing that I did is I wrote five characters, five main characters. I don't mm. – the book actually towards the end will develop into having uh, that main character that you generally have. But throughout the book, um, there are really five char- – these five women, these five women who are meeting at Dillon Beach. Um, the other thing I did is I wrote about women who were not 30. Um, I wrote ab- ab- about them uh, when they were 50. and uh, But that has not been a problem. Um, no one has said to me, you know, I didn't enjoy the book because your women were 50. Um, but I really wanted to do that. I wanted to explore the things that women that age talk about. And um, the other thing is that I was concerned, of course, what they say about having five main characters is how do you keep them all separate? How do people understand what they're reading? And Writer's Digest gave me a review that said it was written well and that one of the things is that they, all the characters were, dili- uh, dili- uh, were set out so that you could keep track of them, and that wasn't a problem. So I felt good about that. Right. Um, Let me interject one thing. Whenever they make a movie and they have lots of, well, we'll say female characters, and they're all the same hair color, I get confused because they (laughs) change their hairdos, and you don't know who they are. I get confused, too. We need blonde, the redhead, the brunette, and the the gray-haired, and whatever, right? Yeah, we definitely need. And all five of my characters are very different and very different personalities and are dealing with different things in their lives that make it interesting. So I'm going to read you uh, just a brief uh, little bit from a chapter that has to do with Christine. And uh, Christine's gay, but she wasn't when they were all kids together. Um, and she has had so that life. So they've been kids since the, since, grammar, since grammar, grammar school, school. Okay. in Hillsburg High. And uh, so she's had that um, adventure in her life. And uh, so I'm reading. Does she di- have a, a companion now? Uh, she doesn't really, although she has a friend. Uh-huh. And um, <clears throat> she she does, however, um, Christine does fall in love. And as a matter of fact, she falls in love with one of the uh, five girls. So uh, that's a bit of a, a, of a of an interesting turn that and takes maybe place. Maybe she has always felt that way. And maybe. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's exactly right. Um, this little piece right here is she's just arrived at Dillon Beach. And it's just before she's gone in to meet everyone. The girls are all gathering there. And uh, so she has a moment. Okay, wait a is this after they've received the inheritance? This is after this. They're yes. just get, they're gathering together the at the Dillon Beach afterwards. Cafe, and they're all going to go up to the beach okay. house together. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so she has a moment to reflect. Christine stood for a moment watching the van pull away and disappear over the hill. What if Vera left forever? Let's say died. Would life go on, her friends, her son, golf, world without end, amen? She set her bag down at the entrance to the cafe and looked out across the parking lot. Fog blurred the view to the gray of sand, blue ocean, and sky. (sighs) One life to live, death till we part. Death was on her mind. 
Last July, on a blazing hot 103-degree day, her mother died while standing at her ironing board, the TV on low. The mailman discovered her. She had ironed shirts forever, forever, at those white shirts, a cigarette burning at the ashtray and an ashtray at the end of the ironing board. Chris always wondered who wore all those shirts, not her father. He'd not worn that many shirts. Maybe it was more than shirts, maybe perhaps a blouse for Chris or a cotton full skirt. But in Chris's memory, forever white shirts, the starched stiffness of unbending morality. All the girls attended her mom's funeral. Even Morgan flew up from L.A. for the funeral. I think your mother died of a broken heart, Morgan said to Chris. Chris's father had died the year earlier. Missed my father, Chris responded. Possibly not. The girls sat together behind Chris in the church, she and her son Thomas in the front row. The son, she wouldn't have had the journey she might not have taken. Thomas was approaching 30 now, a marker when all things childish must be put away. Married to Joni, an energy-charged redhead who still thought herself in competition with Chris for Thomas's attention. Their reunion produced Chris a granddaughter, born in the same year Chris's mom died, Allison. Why not name the child after someone in the family? There's too many Allisons, Chris had suggested on deaf ears. What about Christina? (laughs) When your mom turns up gay, a kid does some thinking. Maybe Thomas and his wife did not want their little girl to be like Grandma. Chris's thoughts had raced when first holding the baby, soft lips sucking at the air. What lessons would this grandma impart? Would Chris feel it a responsibility to talk about homosexuality with her granddaughter? Thomas might, certainly not Joni. People took their heterosexualism for granted, Chris thought. Some were in denial. Chris knew humans to be complex creatures. It was easier being gay today, especially in California. Back in 76, when she'd first come out, it had been a shocker to herself in particular, until, in time, she realized, not shocking. She'd taken her maiden name back. It was hard, deciding to have to have a different name from her son. But an important thing to do, she needed her own real name, an image of herself to hold on to when her insides shook and directions in life felt rewired like your brain goes snap and you're a new person. Except, She wasn't new, and that was good. The same old person, before and after, traveling around inside herself, banging into her own skin. So we meet all five women. You meet all five women. Each of them with their distinctive style. Yes, they're all different. Uh, Their own voice. Yes. And in your... Marilyn, in your book, you have the brother and sister. What is their relationship like? I mean, we've heard, we saw a bit of it in the part you read where mm-hmm. he's protective. They've been together. They want to stay together, which is right. normal because that's something they understand and are familiar with. Well, Charlie was 15 when they were headed for Kansas, and his sister was 12. She mm-hmm. was still pretty dependent on him. The life on the farm was very harsh for her. She did not adapt to it well. And when she had the opportunity to go with 
you know, I'm giving this away. Oh, no. But <laughs> when she has a, t- a chance to go into town and live the life of a, a young lady, right. it was too tempting to succumb to going back to the farm. So th- they, they become estranged as she gets groomed into ladyhood. And the um, uh, it, it wasn't until later when they things calmed down a little bit that they could talk again. But um, this this is an overriding uh, thing with Charlie. It was hard for him to plan for the future as he turns. At the end of the story, he's 18, and he and Christina, um, the other orphan, have become an item. Um, they He doesn't know it right away, but, but they do. And how he is to proceed with his love life and still be responsible for his sister um, is an important part in the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Interesting. See, we've got l- love and money still coming up again here. <laughs> you are listening to Word by Word Conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. We've been listening to readings and comments from Marion Linder, Marilyn Campbell, and Linda Loveland-Reed, the three novelists featured in January, February, and March as part of the Redwood Writers Spotlight at Copperfield's Montgomery Village Branch. Stay tuned for more discussion on the creative process on KRCB-FM's Word by Word, conversation with writers right here on North Bay Public Media. Okay, so let's go back to 1906, the uh, April night when uh, Caruso is singing his famous arias at the in the stage, and, and then... Uh, they go in under a very, very famous uh, chandelier, which is lighted by gas, isn't it not? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, which is going to be a problem later in the evening. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. So um, we obviously don't think much of this captain fellow. Lieutenant Lieutenant Howard. fellow. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. The, you know, he's a little too prissy and a little too, you know, retentive to put it in a another way, a little too uh, – Interested in making sure everything is, you know, OCD'd, right? Perfect, exactly. And um, she doesn't like that. But is it only him she doesn't like or the fact that she has been not finding support from either her mother or her father? This is a great question, Gil, and I'm really glad you brought that up. Anna is a free spirit, and she wants freedom. That is her, you know, reason to exist. She just wants freedom, and she hasn't been able to experience that too much in her family. With her father, she sometimes can. Um, She definitely wants, you know, romance and a normal life, a shot at marriage and children and and the the whole ball of wax. But, you know, this man, Lieutenant Howard, is not going to work for her. But by the end of the evening, there are two suitors, uh, two other suitors, vying for her attentions, and she does she does end up together with one of them. Through in the book because it's a steamy romance, but it's also a survival story. So, you know, how many people are going to survive this? We don't know. But um, uh, she, yeah, she yeah. she definitely wants. She wants. You know, she she wants to rent a flat with some other young women and have a life. You know, perhaps be a librarian. She wants. You know, to experience freedom. Did she have any uh, training? How was she? How was she schooled? That's a great question. She was schooled by a governess. Okay, who taught her what? Latin and, uh, uh, and conjugations of birds. <laughs> 
they focused on the things that, I mean, that young women at yeah. that time, art, yeah. music, letters, um, you know, figures. She read novels. She loved novels. She's, she's a great reader. Right. She loves to read. And her sister, is there a, a, is she considered old at 19? Is she almost an old maid? Almost. And, yeah, she, and, and she feels that that's very unfair. The pressure on her is, is overwhelming. And um, as I said, she's been courted by some other men in the past, and she's always turned them down. And her sister's kind of a busy busybody tattletale. So they have kind of a contentious relationship, too. Right. So there's well, really no, no support. siblings, right. Right, exactly. Right. Okay, the father is in what? What does he do? Oh, he is a diamond merchant, and oh the most, the, well, the highest. That won't burn, will it? The highest echelon. <laughs> <laughs> but they have survived a lot of financial difficulties in the past, and that's actually what has driven the mother and father apart. Uh-huh. Because there's a lot of animosity on 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 Christine's part. That's the mother. And the father's a bit of a gambler, in the, with the diamond. He market. just had an obsession with making. His way as a diamond merchant, he was he he just in he she you know because they married so early in, in their lives, he used her fortune and he lost it. Oh. But then he gained back far more. But so she has never forgiven and him. She's gunny sacking. The, the fact mother has never right, forgiven right, the right, father right. for that. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And then surprise, surprise, this little shaking and rumbling from the ground. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Mm. <laughs> Okay, we're back in Dillon Beach, and we have one of the women that we've met, and there are four others. What should we know about them? There are four others. There is Rennie. She's rather the glue. R-E-N-E? R-E-N-N-I-E. Rennie. Rennie. Oh, like Michael Rennie. Yeah. She's the glue of the group, and she's happily overweight, a mom, married, and loves her boys. Just a minute. So you said she is the glue of the group. Elaborate on that a little bit. You know, I think that uh, we all belong to groups of people we've known a long time, and there's always that person that makes the phone call, gets the gang together, (laughs) lets you know who's doing what or what happened to somebody got married, somebody died. Um, There's always that person, and I think that uh, groups that exist for a long period of time really need those folks that act as the glue. Is she the person the other four call when there's a problem and they yeah. want to share it? Uh, they uh, they sort of have they within the group they each sort of have their favorites uh-huh. ones that they talk to the most. But Lenny is someone who, if she says something's going to happen, then it they all will make they all respond to whatever she says okay. as the glue. Morgan is an actress. Uh, she's married to someone she shouldn't have been married stage to. Stage or screen? Uh, she's a stage. Okay. Uh, and, uh, Any she... similarity between someone I know? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, because I do work in the theater a little bit here and there, right. I guess uh, that was a fun character for me to write about. Um, Nina is uh, a shrink. And uh, she's had plenty in her Ah. own background that drives her to be involved with married men. Abby. Uh, Involved in a a romantic way? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, Abby is an attorney and mayor of Petaluma who is running for Sonoma County supervisor and praying that no one. I see her on the the posters. Huh? (laughs) (laughs) And and she prays, prays that no one finds out her secret. And, of course, we met Chris. Now, all of them have secrets, I assume, from each other. They all do, and they all have, you know. In their family, maybe. 
when you have a group of people that you have known since you were children, you come and go with them. You might not see them mm-hmm. even for mm-hmm. years. And then you're back together again. It's like you are never apart. And it's that kind of thing. They keep together. Sometimes there's sort of a love-hate relationship. Um, there's a many, many years and a lot of things, uh, a lot of uh, water under a lot of bridges here. Mm-hmm. So um, it's uh, – but in the end, it, it it's a story um, – about love, mm-hmm. and um, I think that that comes through. It's also about integrity and um, and morality, and those are not simple subjects. Um, you know, we we and all morality changes over morality time. Morality changes, and definitely uh, excellent point because we all do things in in our lives, and then we need to go down through the years, and we need to live with those things and and also society's morality changes mm-hmm. and um well, so we had reference to that in 1976 and how different it was yes, from today yes. absolutely without yes. a doubt and and of course we all you know we carry a lot of baggage from things that we learned you know we we get married we have friendships we have children we we divorce we're happy we're sad and that all just becomes a bundle of um attitudes that we have about life and some people are going to take that bundle and and look at things more pessimistically and others look at it optimistically but in the end really it all comes down to our background our family and sometimes it's a family that we're trying to extend we we loved it uh, we're trying to live in that in that warmth and that glow other times it's a family we're trying to get away from we're trying to put behind us. It's not always wonderful, but nevertheless, it all comes down in the end to those kinds of things mm-hmm. that affect us. Mm-hmm. The other thing, too, that I work on um, a lot with my books and um, is the idea that no matter what has happened to you, you are going to carry the, the seeds of that. Even though you might have been young, even though you might have felt you weren't affected, that you do carry the seeds of the things that have occurred to you in your life. Mm-hmm. So, and that just that have impacted you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just how you take those uh, and cast those those seeds about your own life uh, and onto others. That uh, you're gonna, you know, find out what happens. <laughs> All right. That gives us a wonderful segue to find out about the morality of the. Plains, where your two orphans end up, what was the spirit of the times in that section of the country? You know, I one thing I kept in my mind was not to make the villains all black, all terrible. You know, the... the well, they're much more interesting if they're not. Well, I think you have to have a balance. <laughs> and clearly <laughs> the mores of the time were, were very different in mid, you know, mid-America, even more so than on the East Coast. Um, I think that the children, as they were exposed, they were so... Uh, Charlie had a very strong uh, morality about him. He was very protective of not only his sister, but the family that he became involved with. Um, Enoch was a frustrated farmer who was just barely making it, there were several natural disasters that occurred during Charlie's stay there. And 
you know, Enoch was beaten down time and again and, and acted out in uh, the ways that men sometimes do, you know, wanting to take uh, uh, the stick to the children or drinking too much, this type of thing. Um, but I think as I was, I, I, I'm hoping this fits in with, with your question, I, because as I was listening to the other authors, I think all three of our books have a, a the theme of survival seems to be center. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and there, there's certainly, um, in my book, um, the struggle for survival was very strong in all of my characters. Um, and in the secondary characters as well. So I'm hoping um, that people won't judge some of the characters and what they do just by their actions. You know, that they look beyond that and understand that sometimes times and circumstances cause people to do things that they don't really want to do. Well, let me ask you a specific question. Because did the orphans come with a cloud over their head because they were orphans? Because there may have been something that the parents, or at least the mother, if she was unwed, you know, that that, mm-hmm. that carried down through the next generation, and then they were somehow tainted. Or were they just accepted as, you know, in the Midwest, we like to think of that's a time where that's going to be at least more forgiving than perhaps some of the straight-laced New England town. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think I explored that so much as um, the fact that when the children were in the orphanages, they were definitely second-class citizens. There were just too many of them for them to get the kind of breaks that even poor children in a intact family, you know, mm-hmm. suffered. And um, I, I think that I did show uh, several of the secondary characters, the other foster parents, I'll call them that. They weren't really addressed as foster parents at that time. Um, I think that they were rather magnanimous in... Um, their dealings with the children, so mm-hmm. I I don't I don't think that there was a, a real stigma in in at least in my story. Right. You know, my understanding in researching is that uh, some of the children that were living on the streets would be, you know, some of the behaviors were pretty bad. You know, just as they sometimes are now, and certainly uh, those children didn't make it. I mean, they got bandied around from house to house and and eventually would either run away or something bad would happen. Um, But um, I hope that answers the question. It does, it does. So we're going to go to San Francisco. Ann O'Malley, she's going to be a survivor tonight, right, because we're still before the earthquake. Absolutely. Where is she when the earthquake hits? Great question. I wanted to make sure that Anna witnessed this so that as readers we could all witness what, what happened. Um, most it's people early were, morning hours. It was early morning, around yeah. five, yeah. five in the morning, just after five in the morning. So what ends up happening is that at the Tivoli, a handsome doctor sees her, and he's seen her before, and he's just amazed by the synchronicity, and he decides that that night before he leaves town for England, he has to go back to England, he's going to introduce himself. So she's dancing that night at a burlesque show for other, with other society girls. That's kind of a naughty thing. And she has stuffed her bed with pillows so that her mother does not know. <laughs> ah. <laughs> anyway, ah. um, 
So he comes to the dressing room to introduce himself. And, you know, of course, she thinks, oh, God, here's another one, another suitor after me. So she enlists her coachman and her best friend, Aurora. Her coachman is very handsome and very compelling. And uh, so she enlists all, all of them to go. So they all go to dinner at the Oyster Loaf, which was a famous hangout. And many, many celebrities went there that night. I have John Barrymore there, but Jack London's been there in the past, yep. other kinds of yep. things. So anyway, they spend the late night hours there. Well, he was a, a you know oyster pirate, and he used to supply them. Oh uh, wow! Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, he he had one of the best quotes <laughs> about the earthquake. He said, you know, because the militia grabbed him, they needed any able-bodied man to clean the streets, and he said it took an earthquake to get out of bed, and the U.S. Army to get me to work. <laughs> I just think he's just tremendously charming. But um, anyway, uh, so they leave there. And then he started the Redwood, I mean, the uh, California Writers Club the next morning, too. <laughs> Jack London, sure. Yeah. I'm making that up. No, no, no. It, actually, I was I was speaking of Barrymore. <laughs> uh, John Barrymore was the one who said that thing about the earthquake that uh, put him to work on the streets. But like Jack London, yeah, yeah, but Jack yeah. London, um, yeah, he did. He started the California Writers Club. Big plug for Redwood Writers. Right. <laughs> Well, anyway, they end up leaving there, going back to the theater where the burlesque show had happened. So about what time are we now? We're, now we're about mid-more- 445 in the morning. 445. Okay. okay. And six seconds. Yeah, right? And okay. she's learned some shocking information about the doctor from the coachman, and she doesn't know whether or not it's true. She decides to invite him on a spur of a whim. Just to, She's very tempestuous. She invites him up. And they go up to the roof, and that's where they see everything uh-huh. unfold. How a nice place to see the whole thing. Yeah. And she's on top of what? The Tivoli? No, no this is the burlesque, the Golden the, Hive. The Golden. No, the Golden Hive is something. Is I made it up. Oh, I made okay. it up. All right. <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm going back to my San Francisco in 1906. Yeah. I made it up. But, um, yeah, and so they go up there and they watch. They watch everything unfold. Uh, quick. Mm. Quick. What did you use as resources for the book? Well, I read... A Crack in the Edge of the World, which mm-hmm. is a famous book about about the earthquake. I read so many books about the earthquake. This was this was all done many, many years ago. I've been working on this project for a long time. Okay. And so how did you keep track of these things? You put them on note cards like the old style oh, no, on post-its or just – I'm uh, – a lot of it's in my brain, but I'll, I keep notes in my computer and then I would grab what I wanted. And uh, It's a really fun process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and when I learned about the political story – I knew I had to put that in because it, right. it's almost as crazy right. as the earthquake it itself. Is. I mean, these people were out of control. And the earthquake is what uh, facilitated Teddy Roosevelt getting involved. Mm-hmm. And that's when they kind of busted that up. And guess who ended up in San Quentin? Abraham Ruiff. Mm-hmm. But he wouldn't testify against the mayor. Um, yeah, San Quentin. I'm trying to remember the dates. Yes, he did. He did. That's sometime later. Right. Okay. Um, so we heard – about what happened, we the, here we both basically got historical novels or novels that are set in a historic sense. Mm-hmm. Yours is a more contemporary novel, but it's based on the pasts of these composite characters, right? It's contemporary, nineteen ninety-five. Okay, um, and I um, travel around to different towns in Sonoma County somewhat, so you get a nice flavor of 
the different things that were going on. I wonder how um, Sebastopol fares. Sebastopol does just fine. Good. And, of course, Hillsburg because right. that's where we were uh, centered in Hillsburg. We all picked prunes in those days. Do you do hops kids. too? Oh, no. No hops. We didn't. Uh, where they were more on the outs by the time we were picking in the 50s. Uh, but we would pick uh, early in the morning, and then we, as soon as it got really, really hot, we'd he- head for the Russian River th- for the rest of the day. Right. Uh, so we would pick prunes for our um, school clothes. And, uh, yeah, they were great times. Mm-hmm. And I do some flashing back to that, but mostly it's more contemporary and issues that are between – um, the different women and things they're dealing with well, in their own lives. Now, I've made an assumption that this is one of the older Dillon Beach houses, or is it one of the new ones up on the block? It's one of the older ones, yeah. yeah. And actually, I had gone over there, Harry and I, my husband and I, had gone over there, and we had some friends that had a, one of the um, older places, and we stayed there. And that it was so charming, you know, you went up these sort of creaky steps way up and second story and the windows look out over the rest of the of the tops of the houses out to the ocean. And uh, the, the, the house had so much character itself. It was just, you know, great to be there. And so that's why I decided to set it. In uh, in Dillon Beach. And a couple of other reasons. You know, when you're writing these days, what you have to do is you have to make a decision on how much technology you're going to deal with. And what will the technology do to your story? Because, you know, complete and and instantaneous connections um, can really uh, spoil (laughs) a a suspense story. Um, So I said it. I wanted it to be modern, but I had it another reason out in Dillon Beach because I was out of the reach of cell phones. And I wanted very much to have not have that access. And, um, you know, so authors have to think about this and how they're going to handle that technology um, before they get into their story these days. And in those days, um, in those days, 1998, in those days, um, but still you didn't have good phone no. communication no. out there. Well, there was a telephone. And telephone. so, you know, even the telephone. So I liked that. I, I, want, I needed that. Um, in my story. So we must assume that there's something that if it was communicated or they could communicate with each other that wouldn't happen the way it does. Yes, yes, there's there's some of that. And um, there, there's a definite um, uh, turning points, I would say, two big-time turning points. Right. Now, you have written for the stage somewhat. You, you've done and produced some plays. Yes. You've done, yes. I, I, and worked with your husband on that. Right. Yeah. My, well, my husband is a playwright and he's written, we probably uh, produced um, seven of his plays, mm-hmm. one of them in San Francisco. And of course, he did an opera that we did at Cinnabar. Um, and I have directed uh, his, that's mainly what I do with theater is direct. And I've directed about six plays uh, for him. It's a, it's a little dicey to direct a play for your husband. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and at the end of each one, I say, I am never doing this again. <laughs> and uh, then somehow or another, of course, I end up doing it because... Um, Did he get to edit your book? 
Oh, we, he writes too. Harry yes. has six published books. I have two. Yes, we read each other's work all the time and we're, we're, it's wonderful and it's great to have somebody right there in your house that you can give your work to that is going to give you an honest and also, um, very intelligent feedback. At, at the same time, sometimes we're sitting there across from each other, editing each other's works. And, you know, one can get a little vigorous with their writing and the other one can all of a sudden get a little bit more vigorous. (laughs) Right. When you are writing, which one of you want to respond, Marilyn or? Yeah, Marilyn first. When you were writing, are you kind of in off by yourself place or are you? uh, Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Most definitely. Um, That doesn't mean that I'm so reclusive that nobody can be around me or that I don't respond to a phone call or that type of thing. But if I'm in the zone, you know, that's it for hours. I mean, no meals get prepared. Uh, I could start out in my pajamas and be there at four. Um, it's just, it's such a high to be able to do that. Um, and it is, you know, it is a solitary kind of thing. So it is important that you have somebody to bounce these things off of, whether it's a husband or a critique group. Um, you have a critique group? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, I formed one, and we were together for about five years, mm-hmm. and then I'm in a different group now. It's very helpful. Right. And you need that honesty and that centering. As long as the critique group doesn't always say, oh, that's the best thing I've ever oh, heard. Oh, no, yeah, that doesn't That doesn't happen. help. No, <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. No. Right. So, Marion, you're writing. Tech- what do you do when you write? Well, I write when my daughter's at school. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> okay. She's in the fifth grade. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm at home with my pets, and my husband's off at work, and it's just a, a tremendous pleasure, as Marilyn said. It's just one of the greatest joys to be able to get so in the, the zone. black cat sit on your desk as you write? Or? Usually I have, I have two. So, yeah, oh. now we have two because we just got a kitten. So, yeah, <laughs> they do. They sit on my table with me. <laughs> right. See, isn't that nice? You, you know, you've got this image of this. Writer sitting at home having coffee and tea, <laughs> having little kitties running around. Yeah. Well, it sometimes is like that. Well, you the, know, I, I think um, in terms of critique groups, I wouldn't write a book without a critique group. Um, I belong to two. And uh, it, it's just you can't critique your own writing. And it, you just can't. So you need to have that feedback. And uh, I, I, it's been very valuable, you know, to have that. Um, now, some of these are available through Redwood Writers. They have critique groups that are worked through them, but it sounds like you developed ones on your it's own. It's a great way. Redwood Writers has over, has 300 local writers that are members, and we meet uh, once a month at the Flamingo Hotel. And it's a wonderful way. When I came to Redwood Writers and I found it, I saw a little article in the paper, and I came down to a meeting, and I went, oh, my gosh, there's people here that are writing. Because I'd, I'd started to write my book, but I was by myself. It was like a vacuum, you know, by myself. And not only do you see other writers and see their accomplishments and be encouraged about what you can do, but... Um, then, you know, there's the workshops and there's the contests and there's every month there we have a professional speaker and it's on all kinds of subjects, you know, how to write, how to build a character, how to build drama, or it might just be how to handle your social media as an author. Uh, and, and or it could be how do I publish? Do I self-publish? Do I try to get an agent? And on and on. There's a lot to learn. And um 
So when I came to Redwood Writers, I had not finished my book, but I finished my book, published it, and then wrote another one and published it. So I I think it's because I had that community of people around me. Mm-hmm. And through that, that was a long way to answer your question about the That's fine. That's fine. Through that, you meet writers and see you can go to open mics you can go to salons and you hear them read and you say well gee you know they're kind of writing the kind of stuff i'm writing Uh, and you approach them and you say would you like to have a critique group and that's kind of how you start to build it right do you do the same kind of thing yeah Yeah. um and usually um there's a mixture of genres you know poets nonfiction writers um i the first group i was in there were two of us writing a novel at the same time, and bless their hearts, they listened to every chapter every week until we were through it. <laughs> and um, and now I'm in a group that is primarily poets, uh, and I do fiction. Um, I do some poetry too, but my background was journalism, so right. you know I don't know how I got from there to here. It helps in terms of doing research. One word at a time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. You have been listening to Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. I'm your host, Gil Manser. My studio engineer is Jesse Fancushin. Theme music is by Bill Conti. KRCB-FM program director is Sean Knight, and our radio coordinator is Wendy Nicholson. On today's show, we shared readings and comments from Marion Linder, Marilyn Campbell, and Linda Loveland-Reed. The three novelists featured as part of the Redwood Writers Spotlight at Copperfield's Montgomery Village branch. A few calendar notes before we close. Marion Linder will present her novel San Francisco at the Montgomery Village Copperfields at 6 on Thursday, January 26th. Marilyn Campbell and her trains to Concordia will be on February 23rd. Linda Loveland-Reed with Something in Stone is on March 30th. And I will be presenting my novel, The Marvelous Journals of Miss Virginia Pettengill, on Thursday, April 26th. In response to listeners who tell me I never let them know when I am doing a presentation locally, I invite you to join me for the first of my three movie-based events entitled Watch Movies Like a Critic at the Sebastopol Center for the Arts from 3 to 6 on Sunday, January 17th. Other presentations follow in February and April. Our next word-by-word show will be broadcast from 4 to 5 on the afternoon of Sunday, February 14th. It's the second Sunday in February, when our guest will be Sonoma State's newest creative writing professor, Stefan Kaisby, sharing from his just-released novel, The Staked Plains. Until then, enjoy basking in the gifts of much-needed rain and glorious sunshine. <laughs>